know, it's good. There's something very special about the call of God. And what we've just been doing has been very important, not just for those who responded at the front, but we've been allowing space for God to speak and God to call. And I would encourage you to respond. There's something incredibly powerful about saying yes to God. When God speaks, we say yes. That's how it works. That's ideally how it works. And this book, the Bible, is filled with stories of people who said yes to God. Some said no, but there are many who said yes. And I want to encourage you to to take hold of what God is calling you to do. All across this room, you saw a, we saw a kind of a few people responding, but all across this room are people who saying who know that God's called them. Some of you know that God has called you to a certain thing, to, to live in a certain way, to act in a certain way, to take steps of faith. And I just want to urge you to say yes to God and keep saying yes. Some have got disappointed at times because you've tried and you've stepped out and it hasn't looked what, like you thought it would. But I encourage you to go back to God and say, God, I know that you spoke to me. I know that you called me. I didn't hear that bit wrong. So just show me how to make this work and trust God again with that call. The call of God's incredibly, incredibly important. Dom spoke last week about God's call to holiness and how God is calling us to live a holy life. And he spoke to us uh, and said that our, God's call to holiness is linked to our identity, that he's telling us to be how we were made to be, that he made us in his image and he's then telling us to live in a way that resembles God and resembles our original design. We're meant to live a holy life. And we're going to look at a verse, uh, kind of springboard off this verse today. This is from 1 Peter. It says, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, Be holy because I am holy. Now, we've been looking at a specific calls to individuals, but I want to look at a more general call and, and really unpack how do we actually do this? How do we live a holy life? How's that possible? And we're going to try and unpack that a little bit today. You may like to take notes. There's going to be a few points later on that you might want to just look at when you get home um, so that you can remember them. Uh, so either on a smartphone or however you're doing that. But just, yeah, just try and hear what God's saying today from these verses and others that I'm going to be sharing with you. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. You wouldn't know it coming to our church fellowship here because there's no donkey. We did think about it, but we decided the lift might be problematic. The same issue with funerals, getting the coffin in is just, anyway. Um, But we decided not to have palm trees. We decided not to have a donkey. Um, But we want to just mark the fact that it's Palm Sunday. So churches around the world are celebrating the fact that on this day, well, not this exact date, but at this season we remember Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And we have in the New Testament three eyewitness, at least three eyewitness accounts of this occasion. Three people who were with Jesus on that day wrote down what they saw. And they recorded it for us so we can read about what actually happened on the day. And we read that Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem at this time of the Jewish feast. Everyone's getting ready for, getting ready for Passover. This amazing feast where people would kind of gather from all around Israel and all the scattered lands and come to Jerusalem to celebrate together at the temple and around there. So the the city is filled with people. Some some estimates put it at a million plus. I'm not sure how true those are. It's difficult to work out. But absolutely rammed with people, this ancient city full of people. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
with people waving palm branches around and shouting Hosanna. And the Bible story tells us that one of the eyewitness accounts tells us that the next day he goes into the temple. So he has a look around that day, but he goes back another day. And and on that second day, he goes in and he turns over some tables that are there in, in, in the court of the Gentiles, the outer courts. And people had been changing money at those tables, and he, he turns it over and causes a commotion. It says, this eyewitness account tells us that Jesus drives out people who are buying and selling, and he stops people carrying merchandise through the temple courts. All the time, the religious people are looking on. At this spectacle that's unfolding. Jesus seems quite angry. He seems quite frustrated with what's happening, as he's causing absolute havoc in this court of the Gentiles, this outer section of the temple area. And people are looking on, and the religious leader's response is very interesting, because Jesus goes on to do some teaching after that. I didn't imagine that there'd be an immediate uproar, Jesus would be arrested and carried off, but there isn't. It's quite interesting to note that it's, it's after that point that they, they challenge him and they say, what authority do you have to do these things? Because they're watching. They're watching everything he's doing, and in their minds there's a question, because they've seen some of the things that Jesus has done, and there's a question, how can this man do these things? Is he holy, or is he angry? Is, what response is Jesus, what, why is Jesus doing these things? Is he doing it because God's told him to? A bit like some of the things that were happening today. Andy, I don't think, had some of that on his script today. I think he was what we would call responding to the Holy Spirit. He and I lead meetings. We would call it winging it at times. <laughs> Where you've prayed, you've prepared, you've done all that you can, and, and then God takes it in a different direction, and you just try and keep up. That's your job, keeping up with God. And, and, and that's exciting to do. And, and I think the religious leaders at this point had enough of a knowledge and understanding of how God worked to, to be asking the question, well, How is Jesus doing these things? What gives him the authority? What gives him the right? How can he come in? Because we're really annoyed with what he's doing. We're perturbed by it. But is he holy or is he just angry at this point? Now, people have looked at this passage of Jesus coming into the temple and they've they've justified their own anger by what Jesus does. We justify getting stroppy sometimes because, well, Jesus turned over the table, so I can. No, you're just being stroppy. You've just thrown your toys out of the pram. That's different. That's not the same. Jesus here in this passage is, is doing something profound that we can look at another time. He's, he's frustrated, annoyed that there's buying and selling going on where the Gentiles should be worshipping God. He's, he's frustrated that stuff's getting in the way from people being able to encounter God. Uh, well, we can unpack that another time. Jesus is responding in a way that's very different from everybody else. There are all sorts of ways of living, all sorts of different ways of being. And this verse that we've got here challenges us to be holy because God is holy. We're made in the image of God, Dominic was telling us last week, but we're not God. We're different. He's majestic, we're limited. He's eternal, we're temporal. He's all-knowing, we have limited knowledge. There's also an ethical content to holiness where it's about doing the right thing, living rightly, and we want to look a little bit at that today as well. 
Whatever your view about how you got here, and I don't mean on the bus, I mean how you emerged in this place on this planet, how we as human beings got here, whatever your theory of that is, whatever your view is, whatever your worldview is that helps you make sense of that. I believe, and we believe here in this church, that you are a living, breathing human being designed by God. That you have been made distinctly in God's image. That whatever theory and worldview you have, your, your birth is not accidental. It's not a mistake. But that God cares, and he has a plan for your life. You're made in his image. You know, I love making do. I love seeing a job that needs doing, looking at the tools I've got around me to try and do that job and having a go. For some years, I've resisted paying a window cleaner. It might be because I'm tight. It might be because I don't like the thought of having to arrange it. Judith would quite like us to have a window cleaner. But I, in my manifold wisdom, decided that we didn't need one. So for some years, I have had a, a kind of cloth thing tied to a bit of stick, tied to another stick, that I've extended our three-way ladder up against the house. And on the very top rung, you know, just where you're thinking, I think the ladder might just shift away from the building in a minute, I've stood and held on and and kind of squeegeed as best I can the windows at the top and, and tried to do the best I can for years. And it's kind of worked okay. I've done quite a good job. But it was a revelation when I actually bought a proper ladder. It's amazing. Just a year or so ago, I bought a proper ladder that can reach to the top and already had a good squeeze. It's just absolutely amazing to use tools as they are designed for. It's been great. One year, a few years ago, when the boys were little, we got surprised by sudden snowfall. And I wasn't ready as a dad. As a dad, you need to be ready for sudden snowfall. And I wasn't. And everything was shut and everything was shut down. And we didn't have a sledge. And I wanted one because it was Great. I should have seen Andy, shouldn't I? But he wasn't at work, I don't think, that day. And uh, Anyway, so what did we do? So I thought, well, what have we got? So found some cardboard boxes, wrapped them in some bin bags, kind of made the best we could, headed off to a hill, and kind of went down the hill as best we could. It was all right. But the next year, we had a sledge. Much better. Didn't fall apart halfway down. Wasn't embarrassing to lug around because you're carrying bits of rubbish wrapped up in plastic. Much better. Discovered that despite my ability to make the best of what I've got around me, to actually use things in the way they're designed is very much more fulfilling. Uh, And to be used by God in the way he's designed you to be made is incredibly fulfilling. I want to just say to you, to commend to you following the call of God on your life. If God has called you, live according to that call. Live according to that design. Don't let anything distract you from following the call of God because it is the most fulfilling way to live. There's no better way to live. There's no more exciting, no more satisfying way to live than to live according to the call of God that he's given you. It might look different to everybody else, but it's okay. Live according to his call. When he says, I want you to live like this, then do it. It is possible to live in a way you're not designed for, but it's not the best way to live. The religious understanding of holiness, this verse, is resembled in and pictured for us in the rest of the people in that story when Jesus rides into the temple, or into, the, into Jerusalem and then walks into the temple. That would be another story altogether if he rode into the temple on a donkey. That would be taking it too far. Um, but he doesn't. So he goes into the temple courts. 
And, and what we see there is a picture of people performing rites and rituals and trying to keep the law. And basically, a religious understanding of this concept of holiness is that if you work hard and keep the rules, you might be able to make God pleased with you. Because generally speaking, a religious understanding of pleasing God is that we start off from a pretty low point. We start off with God being a bit miffed with us and a bit not very pleased with us. And if we get it right, and if we work hard enough, we might just manage to make God a little bit more pleased with us than he already is. That's a religious understanding of holiness. That if we keep working hard, eventually we'll become better. We'll become a bit more acceptable to God. That he'll like us a bit more. And many people feel that way, but it isn't true. I want to just encourage you to be careful what you conclude on the basis of your feelings. Because your feelings lie to you. My feelings lie to me. Our feelings are meant to be like a a warning light to say there's something going on, but they don't tell you what to do. Like a warning light on the car. They tell you there's something happening, but you have to stop and investigate. And too many of us see a feeling or notice a feeling and then immediately conclude that we know exactly what to do when we don't. Our feelings don't give us that awareness. And sometimes we feel guilty. We feel that God isn't very pleased with us. And so many people live as if God doesn't want them and he doesn't care about them and as if they they don't deserve him. And so they they keep away because they don't want to be told off. They don't want to be, they don't want God to be disappointed with them as they think he is. But that isn't the case. Jesus' message is so different. Jesus promises new life as a gift, something that you can't earn, and he comes close to offer it. Religion tells us that holiness is attained by our effort. Jesus tells us that holiness is obtained by him for us. He he gets it for us. This is a passage from Romans, a letter that Paul wrote. It says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they've earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God, who forgives sinners. We're going to look at this a little bit more next week on Easter, when it's Easter. Um, But this is just an exciting verse that tells us that it's not because of what we've done that makes us holy, but what Jesus does for us. That's exciting. It tells us that all our religious efforts are just wasted. If they're trying to make God happy with us, because he already is. He gives us forgiveness and righteousness. So actually what we're talking today is about more about maintaining what God has already given, not about attaining something that he hasn't. Revelation 2. One of Jesus' followers, John, sees a vision and he writes this, which is Jesus' words to the church. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you've done at first. So this is a a challenging word from Jesus to his church. If holiness was something we attained by ourselves, you'd expect him to say, you worthless lot, you're never going to get to where I told you you should be. Sort yourselves out. He doesn't. He says, you've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. He says, you were up here and you've fallen back. Come on. Get back to where you were. Getting to where we are in God isn't achieved by our own efforts. It's something that God does for us. We can slip back. We can fall away from God. But actually, he's saying that I'm going to get you there. 
I'm going to make you holy. I'm going to make you righteous. This is all just the kind of setting the scene for how we actually put this into practice. How is it possible to live a holy life? Is it even possible? Don was telling us that God makes us holy, that it's our, connected with our identity, but how do we actually live this out? I don't believe God's called us to live a life of perpetual disappointment. I believe he's called us to live a life of the confidence and overcoming life, free from the dominion of sin. So let's have a look at some steps, and you might want to just write these down. Number one, live according to what God says about you. Live according to what God says about you. Now, I've got some breaking news. Some breaking news for you. Doreen, many of you will know Doreen, just sitting over here. Our dear, lovely Doreen Blackman is off to see the Queen next week. Woo! Very polite, a very genteel and polite round of applause. That's in order. So, on Maundy Thursday, Doreen will be meeting the Queen with tens of others, not hundreds, tens of others, to receive some Maundy money. She's been nominated for this honor. It's not a lot of money, so don't try and tap her for some cash afterwards. So, I hear you've come into your inheritance. Can I have a bit? It's not like that. It's not, she's not winning the lottery. Better than that, she's meeting the Queen. It's very exciting. She's been nominated for this honor because of the work she's done in the town and uh, different things like that. She doesn't want us to, doesn't want to make a fuss about it. But secretly, she's quite excited. And it is exciting. And, and Doreen's had a letter and some information about how to behave properly and how to dress properly and what you can and can't do. And uh, I saw a piece of paper that a family had prepared for her today on how to lift the teacup and not the saucer and all this sort of thing. So she's got the rules and regulations there. And that's quite exciting. And so Doreen's behavior will be modified by where she is for the day. But just imagine for a moment that Doreen got a different letter altogether. And the letter didn't say, you're invited to meet the queen, but the letter said, you've become queen. And just imagine, now, you might be worried at this point, because you think, well, I, you know, you, or Doreen might be worried at this point, but just imagine Doreen got that letter saying, today, Doreen, you have become queen. Queen Doreen. The first. <laughs> You're possibly about the right height, actually. <laughs> Dignified. I think you could pull it off. But just imagine you got that letter. Doreen's behavior and her way of life would completely alter forever. This wouldn't just be a day where she gets dressed up and learns the rules and behaves and says the right thing and thinks you know, tries to think about all the things she shouldn't be saying and tries not to say them and all, all of this and just behaves right for one day. But suddenly, Doreen would become, have to become something else. She'd have to live in a different way. Have to live differently, not just on Maundy Thursday, but Good Friday and there's the Saturday and then Easter Sunday and onwards from there. And every single day would be different, having to wake up knowing that there was a different way to live, that life had suddenly changed. Jesus says about us that we're no longer slaves, but we're God's children. And since we're his children, God's made us heirs. He also says that in, in 1 Peter, you're a chosen people, a royal priest of the holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So very simply, the first thing that we need to do is to live in accordance with what God already says about us. I suppose a simple question to ask, just to check, is, do I believe I am a child of God? Just ask yourself, 
Not right now, but do I believe I'm a child of God? And there's two possible answers, yes or no. And if you're saying, no, I don't, it could be that you haven't yet said yes to following Jesus. It could be that your response, I'm not sure I am a child of God, is actually because that's true. And you haven't yet said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord, and I want to follow you, and I want to wholeheartedly walk with you, because actually the way I've been walking isn't right, and I, I need to get right with you, and I need you to forgive me, and I need you to make me your child. So that's one possible reason why you might be saying no. But all equally, it could be that actually you've already done that, and you know that you're a Christian, you know that you're following Jesus, but somehow you've just begun to doubt. Well, don't. You're a child of God. Secondly, count yourself dead to sin and alive to Jesus. Romans 6, verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is, Romans is a book with 16 chapters. It's a letter from a guy called Paul to a group of Christians. 16 chapters. This is the first imperative or command in that book. It's chapter 6. He's got through chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And some people think that Paul's always telling people what to do. This is the first time he does in Romans. It says this, in the same way, count yourselves. That word count is imperative. It's commanding. Count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. He's saying there, reckon, calculate, do a careful examination of the facts. Our American cousins would say, do the math. What does it mean, says Andy? You know what it means. Look carefully and examine. Examine, just take note of what God has done and recognize it, acknowledge it. Count yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. The logic is this. Jesus died, we were in Christ, therefore we also died with Christ. We died to sin and our old way of life. We're raised up new with him. We're not immune from sinning, but we're dead to its power. We're not immune from sinning, but we're dead to its power. It's not only a command, but it's also present tense. This word count, and so it's ongoing. The encouragement is not to just to do it once, but to keep on counting ourselves dead to sin. And this is actually requiring honesty of us. It requires honesty for two things. One, firstly, to see that we were more enslaved in sin than we thought we were. Let me just say that again. We were more enslaved in sin than we thought. You and I were more stuck in sin than we thought. And its ongoing effects are stronger than we thought they were, which is why Paul's telling these people to keep counting themselves dead to sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't need to. But secondly, the truth is this, that in Christ we are more free from sin than we think we are. Jesus is stronger. So we were more enslaved to it than we think than we thought, and now we are more free than we think we are. Jesus is stronger. The question for this point is this. Which am I aware is more alive in me, sin or Jesus? What am I aware is more alive in me, sin or Jesus? That's the question to go with this point. Next one. Choose to go to war with sin. There's a point early on in the Bible where God says this, If you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. When you walk with Jesus, sin doesn't 
stop having an effect on our lives the moment you start following Jesus. The very fact we have to count ourselves dead to sin proves that. It proves that sin is still is an active factor all around us and in our lives, and we have to count ourselves dead to sin. And choosing to go to war with sin brings honesty. I think we're often dishonest with ourselves and with others about the reality of sin and temptation in our lives. If God's calling us to be holy, and we want to be, then we've got to be more honest, folks. Peter writes this, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And I want to just pause there and just recap, because the word that's at the top in orange, holy, has one primary meaning throughout the whole of the Bible. It's got a secondary meaning, which is about righteousness, but the primary meaning is separate. Separate. When God, de- when God declares that he is holy, or when people are saying that he's holy, they're meaning, and they say, that God is different from other things. Like he's majestic and we're not, and he's eternal and we're not. He's different from us. So he is holy. He's other. He's separate. You know, you might have in your house or your parents might have had, or your grandparents might have had, a best tea service. And if you went round to Granny's house, she might have got out the best tea service for you. And it probably had a frilly pattern on it, and it got brought out for special occasions, and special people coming round, and and then after they'd gone, it got put back in the cupboard again, and never again saw the light of day, until somebody else special came round, and you got the special tea service out. The best, the separate one. Now, actually, in terms of drinking tea, the special tea service is no more useful than the non-special tea service. In fact, in most people's cases, it's less useful. Because normally you have a great big mug of tea, and that's quite nice. And then you get the special tea service, and you get this little dainty thing, and it's rubbish, because you want three or four cups. But the point is not whether it's better or worse. The point is that it's separate and distinct. There's something different about the specialty service that isn't in the normal one. And that's a helpful illustration because throughout the Bible we read God telling us to be holy. And what he's saying isn't just be good, be better than you are. He's saying be different, be separate. I'm separate, so you be like me. There's something special about being separate. And this second passage here says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles or aliens and strangers, another passage says, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. I want you to notice the words that he used. We're at war, folks. This is battle language being used. This isn't just polite terminology to be used in church. This is, this is battle language that's, that Peter's using here. Go to war. Fight. I suppose a simple question to just check whether this has any resonance with us at all, is to ask this, have I been seeing the reality of sin and its effects in my life? Have I been seeing the reality of sin and its effects in my life? And if I have, then I need to go to war with sin. Make a conscious decision to battle it. Because it won't just happen on its own. Next one, how to live a holy life. Choose where you live. When you're choosing a home, we're told... There are three very important things. Location, location, location. Well, that's what the TV says anyway. You look at where the schools are, what access is like, 
property values may be, you look at the area around it, you choose a house often, not just on how suitable the house is, but on based on where it is. There's a story which I've come across recently again in Numbers. It's an unusual story in the Bible. This is a story of a guy called Balaam. And there's another man called Balak, who is a ruler of a particular group of people. And Balak has a problem, because on the borders near his people are all these Israelites amassing, refugees actually, but they're amassing. They've come out of Egypt and they're going into Balak's land and he doesn't like the look of it. And he calls a guy called Balaam to come and speak some negative words over Israel. He's asked all his own prophets, he's asked all his own seers, everybody else, and they've, they've kind of said the normal stuff. Oh, Balak's amazing, Balak's the best, we love you, Balak, all that kind of stuff. But Balak's not particularly convinced. I'm paraphrasing. If you know the story really well, this is a rough version. Um, but you're going to get the important point. Balaam comes, and Balaam actually listens to what God says. And Balaam says, well, I'll only say what God allows me to say. And he gets to the people and starts to prophesy something good over them, because they're actually God's people, and God blesses them. And so Balaam begins to speak a positive word, and Balak doesn't like it. And this goes on several times. And Balaam keeps speaking a good word. But this passage, Numbers 23, verse 9, is right in the middle of this, And this is what Balaam sees when he sees the people of Israel. It says, I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. This is intimately connected with this sense of holiness, that we're not like other people, that actually we need to choose where we live and how we live. One question to help us with this. What are my priorities? What are my priorities? And that might seem unusual to ask, but I want to show you why. If my aspirations, my hopes, and my dreams are exactly the same as those of my neighbors, it means that I'm just like my neighbors. In this passage, if Israel's priorities were the same as Balak's and all the other nations around, it means that they are just the same as them. So as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, if my priorities are just the same as those of the world around me, if my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations are the same, I've got to ask why. Because what you hope for reveals what's in your heart. What your priorities are reveal who it is that you're following and who you're serving and what the call of God on your life is. You see, when you're called, your priority is to fulfill that call. Is that fair? But if you're not, then you just pick up the priorities of everybody around you. The second verse I've got there says this, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And that might seem like a really condemning verse, because you think, well, I'm sure I've got sin in my life, and I've seen sin recently. I'm sure it's not that long ago since I sinned. Uh, but this verse is saying, it, I've highlighted the Greek word there, it means to remain or abide. He who lives in him, that's why I'm saying choose where you live. He who abides in Jesus, remains in him, won't continually live in patterns of sin because you're living in Christ. It's not saying that you won't ever sin again. It's saying you won't continue to abide in sinful ways of life. How to live a holy life. Look for the exit, not the entrance to temptation. Look for the exit, not the entrance to temptation. When you go on a plane, 
some stewards and stewardesses do their job in highlighting the way to get off the plane quickest if the thing's coming down. You hope never, ever to use that information, which I think is why people tend not to listen very much, because they're kind of, I think, is it cognitive dissonance? You're just hoping you never, ever have to use that information ever again, so I'll do something else rather than listen to what they say. When you're tempted, God always provides a way out. Every single time. There's always a way out. If you can't see one, if you find yourself in temptation right now, and you can't see a way out, have another look. There is always a way out. In hindsight, I've discovered that I've always found one, even if I couldn't see one at the time. If you can't see one, let someone else help. This passage here in 1 Corinthians says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll always provide a way out. He'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So the key question here is, what is my response to temptation? You see, one of the times I've, well, many of the times I find myself struggling is, is, is not when I'm tempted, necessarily, because we will all be tempted. This proves it. This proves that we will be tempted, this passage, because it says when you are tempted. It's not a surprise. So we will be. But often what happens in, in my life is that I mull over the temptation. I have a look at it. I, I look at it closely. I inspect it. And, and that's not always very helpful. We should be looking for an exit, looking for a way out. We need to remember that we can help it. We're all quite, a good, quite good at excusing our behavior and condemning other people. But this passage, she tells us that we should say this. No one should say when we're tempted, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. That sounds really heavy going, doesn't it? But I think it's really encouraging. Because it's saying, folks, there's no excuse. Stop pretending. We don't need to pretend and rationalize these things. We just run away from temptation. Just avoid it. Head in a different direction. Because it's not good. It's not from God. It's actually not helpful, so let's move away from it as quick as we possibly can. I suppose the question to ask here would be, what excuses am I finding myself saying? What excuses am I finding myself saying? Let's wrap this up. When you sin, go to God quickly. This is how to live a holy life. See, being holy isn't always avoiding. I'd love to say that living a holy life means never, ever sinning again. But what I've discovered is this. As I walk with Jesus, as I try and follow him, that I am more increasingly aware of my sin than I used to be. If I'm being honest, I'm more increasingly aware of my status with Jesus that I'm a son of the risen king that nothing can take that away. And there's a godly confidence in me, and that's growing and growing, and I'm confident in him, but I'm actually also aware there's some other stuff going on that isn't godly. And that's okay to be aware of both. And you don't need to pretend that sin isn't there. That's false and fake. That doesn't match up to what the Bible says. We don't need to pretend, oh, I'm, I'm a child of the king. None of that matters. No, it does. I'm a child of the king, so I need to live in that and not live here in this stuff, but it's still there. 
And I'm not going to flirt with temptation. I'm not going to play with it. I'm not going to look at the temptation and go, oh, that actually is quite attractive. Maybe if I, maybe if I did it once, it would be okay. No, I'm not going to try and do that. I'm going to try and leave temptation behind and leave sin behind. But if I sin, when I sin, because I will, the Bible tells us this. John writes this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Run quickly to God. The question I would ask here is, what am I not willing to forgive myself for? What am I not willing to forgive myself for? Because some people have things that hold them back from going to God. Run quickly to God. He's waiting to forgive your sin. He's waiting, longing to say, come on, let's get this dealt with. I've already paid the price. You're already free. The very last one. Be holy in community. Here I want to make an apology. I can only make it for me, and I can perhaps make it for us. I can't make it for the whole of Christendom, though I'd like to try. So if I was able to, I would make this apology. I would say, I'm sorry that the church has often expected the wrong people to be holy. And I'm sorry about that. I think the church, globally, historically, has for too long demanded holiness of the wrong people. I don't believe that we're meant to point the finger at those outside of the community of faith and say, that's where you're falling down. I don't believe that's our role. I don't believe Jesus did that. And I don't believe he commands us to either. I believe our role is to model what holiness looks like, to model what following Jesus looks like, to hear God's call to respond passionately, and then to live holy lives as separated people within our communities, loving our neighbors, being generous to them, whether people have faith or no faith, whatever they believe, whatever their political persuasions, whatever their moral choices, to love extravagantly and generously. I'm not talking about separation, let you shut yourselves off. We, we choose to follow a different way. That makes us separate. But we love extravagantly and generously. And in the middle of that way of life, our job is to follow Christ. And the Bible tells us this, that we should be living that in community. Confess your sin to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. I suppose the question here would be, who am I helping live out their faith honestly and openly? And who's helping me? Who am I helping live out their faith honestly and openly? And who's helping me? I believe we're meant to be a community that models transforming the transforming work of God. to model holiness. To show, actually, that we're not immune from sin. To show, actually, that we're, we know we're called to live differently, but actually we face the same struggles that everybody else does. The only difference is that we have one leading the way. We have one who's paid the price. We have one who doesn't make it all okay, but he's actually paid the painful price of sin. And our response is different. So how do we live this life? We do all those things. The call to live a holy life is not a cruel joke or a heavy burden. The call to live a holy life actually is about living for Christ 
in such a way, as the end of this verse says, that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I encourage you today, urge you to follow the call of God on your life. I urge you to live for Jesus, to recognize what he says about you, to count yourself dead to sin and alive in Jesus, to go to war with sin, to choose where you live, to choose what your priorities are, to look for the exit when you're tempted, not the entrance into it, to not excuse our behavior. When we sin, to go to God quickly and finally to be holy in community. I wonder if we can pray together.